Section 10 of Volume 1F of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jim Dennison. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by david hume volume one f section ten chapter sixty five part one chapter sixty five charles the second since the restoration england had attained a situation which had never been experienced in any former period of her government and which seemed the only one that could fully ensure at once her tranquillity and her liberty the king was in continual want of supply from the parliament and he seemed willing to accommodate himself to that dependent situation instead of reviving those claims of prerogative so strenuously insisted on by his predecessors charles had strictly confined himself within the limits of law and had courted by every art of popularity the affections of his subjects even the severities however blamable which he had exercised against nonconformists are to be considered as expedients by which he strove to ingratiate himself with that party which predominated in parliament but notwithstanding these promising appearances there were many circumstances which kept the government from resting steadily on that bottom on which it was placed the crown having lost almost all its ancient domains relied entirely on voluntary grants of the people and the commons not fully accustomed to this new situation were not yet disposed to supply with sufficient liberality the necessities of the crown they imitated too strictly the example of their predecessors in a rigid frugality of public money and neither sufficiently considered the indigent condition of their prince nor the general state of europe where every nation by its increase both of magnificence and force had made great additions to all public expenses some considerable sums indeed were bestowed on charles and the patriots of that age tenacious of ancient maxims loudly upbraided the commons with prodigality but if we may judge by the example of a later period when the government has become more regular and the harmony of its parts has been more happily adjusted the parliaments of this reign seem rather to have merited a contrary reproach the natural consequence of the poverty of the crown was besides feeble irregular transactions in foreign affairs a continual uncertainty in its domestic administration no one could answer with any tolerable assurance for the measures of the house of commons few of the members were attached to the court by any other band than that of inclination royalist indeed in their principles but unexperienced in business they lay exposed to every rumour or insinuation and were driven by momentary gust or currents no less than the populace themselves even the attempts made to gain an ascendant over them by offices and as it is believed by bribes and pensions were apt to operate in a manner contrary to what was intended by the ministers the novelty of the practice conveyed a general and indeed a just alarm while at the same time the poverty of the crown rendered this influence very limited and precarious 
the character of charles was ill-fitted to remedy those defects in the constitution he acted in the administration of public affairs as if government were a pastime rather than a serious occupation and by the uncertainty of his conduct he lost that authority which could alone bestow constancy on the fluctuating resolutions of the parliament his expenses too which sometimes perhaps exceeded the proper bounds were directed more by inclination than by policy and while they increased his dependence on the parliament they were not calculated fully to satisfy either the interested or disinterested part of that assembly the parliament met after a long adjournment and the king promised himself everything from the attachment of the commons all his late measures had been calculated to acquire the good will of his people and above all the triple league it was hoped would be able to efface all the disagreeable impressions left by the unhappy conclusion of the dutch war but a new attempt made by the court and a laudable one too lost him for a time the effect of all these endeavors buckingham who was in great favor with the king and carried on many intrigues among the commons had also endeavored to support connections with the nonconformist and he now formed a scheme in concert with the lord keeper sir orlando bridgeman and the chief justice sir matthew hale two worthy patriots to put an end to those severities under which these religionists had so long labored it was proposed to reconcile the presbyterians by a comprehension and to grant a toleration to the independents in other sectaries favor seems not by this scheme as by others embraced during the present reign to have been intended the catholics yet were the zealous commons so disgusted that they could not be prevailed on even to give the king thanks for the triple league however laudable that measure was then and has ever since been esteemed they immediately voted an address for a proclamation against conventicles their request was complied with but as the king still dropped some hints of his desire to reconcile his protestant subjects the commons passed a very unusual vote that no man should bring into the house any bill of that nature the king in vain reiterated his solicitations for supply represented the necessity of equipping a fleet and even offered that the money which they should grant should be collected and issued for that purpose by commissioners appointed by the house instead of complying the commons voted an inquiry into all the miscarriages during the late war the slackening of sale after the duke's victory from false orders delivered by brunker the miscarriage at bergen the division of the fleet under prince rupert and albemarle the disgrace at chatham brunker was expelled the house and ordered to be impeached commissioner pett who had neglected orders issued for the security of chatham met with the same fate these impeachments were never prosecuted the house at length having been indulged in all their prejudices were prevailed with to vote the king three hundred and ten thousand pounds by an imposition on wine and other liquors after which they were adjourned public business besides being retarded by the disgust of the commons against the tolerating maxims of the court met with obstructions this session from a quarrel between the two houses skinner a rich merchant in london 
having suffered some injuries from the East India Company, laid the matter by petition before the House of Lords, by whom he was relieved in cost and damages to the amount of five thousand pounds. The Commons voted that the Lords, in taking cognizance of this affair, originally, without any appeal from inferior courts, had acted in a manner not agreeable to the laws of the land, and tending to deprive the subject of the right, ease, and benefit due him by these laws, and that Skinner, in prosecuting the suit after this manner, had infringed the privileges of the commons, for which offence they ordered him to be taken into custody. Some conferences ensued between the houses where the lords were tenacious of their right of judicature, and maintained that the method in which they had exercised it was quite regular. The commons rose into a great ferment, and went so far as to vote that whoever should be aiding or assisting in putting in execution the order or sentence of the House of Lords, in the case of Skinner against the East India Company, should be deemed a portrayer of the rights and liberties of the commons of England, and an infringer on the privileges of the House of Commons. They rightly judged that it would not be easy after this vote to find any one who would venture to incur their indignation. The proceedings indeed of the Lords seem in this case to have been unusual and without precedent. The King's necessities obliged him again to assemble the Parliament, who showed some disposition to relieve him. The price, however, which he must pay for this indulgence, was his yielding to new laws against conventicles. His complacence in this particular contributed more to gain the commons than all the pompous pretenses of supporting the triple alliance, that popular measure by which he expected to make such advantage. The quarrel between the two houses was revived, and as the commons had voted only four hundred thousand pounds, with which the king was not satisfied, he thought proper, before they had carried their vote into a law, to prorogue them. The only business finished this short session was the receiving of the report of the committee appointed for examining the public accounts. On the first inspection of this report there appears a great sum, no less than a million and a half, unaccounted for, and the natural inference is that the king had much abused the trust reposed in him by Parliament. But a more accurate inspection of particulars serves, in a great measure, to remove this imputation. The king indeed went so far as to tell the Parliament, from the throne, that he had fully informed himself of that matter, and did affirm that no part of those monies which they had given him had been diverted to other uses. But on the contrary, besides all those supplies, a very great sum had been raised out of his standing revenue and credit, and a very great debt contracted and all for the war. Though artificial pretenses have often been employed by kings in their speeches to Parliament, and by none more than Charles, it is somewhat difficult to suspect him of a direct lie and falsehood. He must have had some reasons, and perhaps not unplausible ones, for this affirmation, of which all his hearers, as they had the accounts lying before them, were at that time competent judges. The method which all parliaments had hitherto followed was to vote a particular sum for the supply, 
without any distinction or any appropriation to particular services so long as the demands of the crown were small and casual no great inconveniences arose from this practice but as all the measures of government were now changed it must be confessed that if the king made a just application of public money this inaccurate method of proceeding by exposing him to suspicion was prejudicial to him if he were inclined to act otherwise it was equally hurtful to the people for these reasons a contrary practice during all the late reigns has constantly been followed by the commons when the parliament met after the prorogation they entered anew upon the business of supply and granted the king an additional duty during eight years of twelve pounds on each ton of spanish wine imported eight on each ton of french a law also passed empowering him to sell the fee farm rents the last remains of the domains by which the ancient kings of england had been supported by this expedient he obtained some supply of his present necessities but left the crown if possible still more dependent than before how much money might be raised by these sales is uncertain but it could not be near one million eight hundred thousand pounds the sum assigned by some writers the act against conventicles passed and received the royal assent it bears the appearance of mitigating the former persecuting laws but if we may judge by the spirit which had broken out almost every session during this parliament it was not intended as any favor to the nonconformists experience probably had taught that laws over rigid and severe could not be executed by this act the hearer in a conventicle that is in a dissenting assembly where more than five were present besides the family were fined five shillings for the first offence ten for the second the preacher twenty pounds for the first offence forty for the second the person in whose house the conventicle met was immersed a like sum with the preacher one clause is remarkable that if any dispute should arise the judges should always explain the doubt in the sense least favorable to the conventicles it being the intention of parliament entirely to suppress them such was the zeal of the commons that they violated the plainest and most established maxims of civil policy which require that in all criminal prosecutions favor should always be given to the prisoner the affair of skinner still remained a ground of quarrel between the two houses but the king prevailed with the peers to accept of the expedient proposed by the commons that a general razure should be made of all the transactions with regard to that disputed question some attempts were made by the king to effect a union between england and scotland though they were too feeble to remove all the difficulties which obstructed that useful and important undertaking commissioners were appointed to meet in order to regulate the conditions but the design chiefly by the intrigues of lauderdale soon after came to nothing the king about this time began frequently to attend the debates of the house of peers he said that they amused him and that he found them no less entertaining than a play but deeper designs were suspected as he seemed to interest himself extremely in the cause of lord ruse who had obtained a divorce from his wife on the accusation of adultery 
and applied to Parliament for leave to marry again, people imagined that Charles intended to make a precedent of the case, and that some other pretense would be found for getting rid of the Queen. Many proposals to this purpose, it is said, were made him by Buckingham. But the King, how little scrupulous soever in some respects, was incapable of any action harsh or barbarous, and he always rejected every scheme of this nature. A suspicion, however, of such intentions, it was observed, had at this time begotten a coldness between the two royal brothers. We now come to a period when the king's counsels, which had hitherto in the main been good, though negligent and fluctuating, became during some time remarkably bad, or even criminal, and breeding incurable jealousies in all men were followed by such consequences as had almost terminated in the ruin both of prince and people. Happily the same negligence still attended him, and, as it had lessened the influence of the good, it also diminished the effect of the bad measures which he embraced. It was remarked that the committee of council established for foreign affairs was entirely changed, and that Prince Rupert, the Duke of Ormond, Sectary Trevor, and the Lord Keeper Bridgeman, men in whose honor the nation had great confidence, were never called to any deliberations. The whole secret was entrusted to five persons, Clifford, Ashley, Buckingham, Arlington, and Lauderdale. These men were known by the appellation of the Cabal, a word which the initial letters of their names happened to compose. Never was there a more dangerous ministry in England, nor one more noted for pernicious counsels. Lord Ashley, soon known after by the name of Earl of Shaftesbury, was one of the most remarkable characters of the age, and the chief spring of all the succeeding movements. During his early youth he had engaged in the late King's party, but being disgusted with some measures of Prince Maurice, he soon deserted to the Parliament. He insinuated himself into the confidence of Cromwell, and, as he had great influence with the Presbyterians, he was serviceable in supporting, with his party, the authority of that usurper. He employed the same credit in promoting the restoration, and on that account both deserved and acquired favor with the king. In all his changes he still maintained the character of never betraying those friends whom he deserted, and whichever party he joined, his great capacity and singular talents soon gained him their confidence, and enabled him to take the lead among them. No station could satisfy his ambition. No fatigues were insuperable to his industry. Well acquainted with the blind attachment of faction, he surmounted all sense of shame, and relying on the subtlety of his contrivances, he was not startled with enterprises the most hazardous and most criminal. His talents, both of public speaking and private insinuation, shone out in an eminent degree, and amidst all his furious passions he possessed a sound judgment of business, and still more of men. Though fitted by nature for beginning and pushing the greatest undertakings, he was never able to conduct any to a happy period, and his eminent abilities, by reason of his insatiable desires, were equally dangerous to himself, to the prince, and to the people. 
the duke of buckingham possessed all the advantages which a graceful person a high rank a splendid fortune and a lively wit could bestow but by his wild conduct unrestrained either by prudence or principle he found means to render himself in the end odious and even insignificant the least interest could make him abandon his honor the smallest pleasure could seduce him from his interest the most frivolous caprice was sufficient to counterbalance his pleasure by his want of secrecy and constancy he destroyed his character in public life by his contempt of order and economy he dissipated his private fortune by riot and debauchery he ruined his health and he remained at last as incapable of doing hurt as he had ever been little desirous of doing good to mankind the earl soon after created duke of lauderdale was not defective in natural and still less in acquired talents but neither was his address graceful nor his understanding just his principles or more properly speaking his prejudices were obstinate but unable to restrain his ambition his ambition was still less dangerous than the tyranny and violence of his temper an implacable enemy but a lukewarm friend insolent to his inferiors but abject to his superiors though in his whole character and deportment he was almost diametrically opposite to the king he had the fortune beyond any other minister to maintain during the greater part of his reign an ascendant over him the talents of parliamentary eloquence and intrigue had raised sir thomas clifford and his daring impetuous spirit gave him weight in the king's councils of the whole cabal arlington was the least dangerous either by his vices or his talents his judgment was sound though his capacity was but moderate and his intentions were good though he wanted courage and integrity to persevere in them together with temple and bridgeman he had been a great promoter of the triple league but he threw himself with equal alacrity into opposite measures when he found them agreeable to his master clifford and he were secretly catholics shaftesbury though addicted to astrology was reckoned a deist buckingham had too little reflection to embrace any steady principles lauderdale had long been a bigoted and furious presbyterian and the opinions of that sect still kept possession of his mind how little soever they appeared in his conduct end of section ten chapter sixty five part one recording by jim dennison j i m d e n i s o n voice dot com